Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Crazy Money. This is your host, Paul. I am awfully glad you're here today. My guest this week is Farnoosh Tarabi. She's an Iranian-American journalist and one of the country's most trusted personal financial experts. She's got a new book out. It's called A Healthy State of Panic. And for all of you out there know that uh, I'm an anxiety-ridden panic freak, so it's right up my alley. And in this book, she examines the role of fear and how fear can actually help us. That's right, how fear and discomfort can actually move us toward the most fulfilling relationships, careers, and financial situations that we're meant to have. For over two decades, Farnoosh has strived to help people become financially empowered and lead better lives. She's written multiple books. She hosted a CNBC show, and she's worked with Oprah's editorial team. Yes, Oprah. She hosts the Webby Honored podcast, So Money, on which I've been a guest and which I'll be a guest very soon again. And that podcast has been downloaded over 30 million times, just a few million more than crazy money. In today's conversation, we discuss what it was like when her family brought her to the United States just in the wake of the Iranian revolution and hostage crisis. Always being the new girl, Farnoosh learned how to navigate new schools, her mom's embarrassing clothing choices, her teenage unibrow, achievement anxiety, and the fact that she wasn't allowed to watch Punky Brewster. We discuss the strength and courage of her young mother, the resilience of her older dad, and what she learned from her biggest professional mistakes. Farnoosh holds a degree in finance from Penn State, the Penn State University, and a master's degree in journalism from Columbia University. See links to her book and her website in the show notes. Ladies and gentlemen, this is Farnoosh Tarabi. So the book comes out next week. How are you feeling? Are you feeling like you've done a lot of work and you're ready, or are you anxious and freaking out? I've done all of the above. I felt all of the things. <laughs> if I wasn't feeling anxious, could I be the author of this book? I feel, I was gonna say, <laughs> feel like I'd be a fraud, right? Be... Like I'm always, there's always a rumbling of fear every day, everything I do, but I've learned to befriend it as we'll get into. Has that changed as you've gotten older? Well, I think with age, there's a healthy amount of just been there, done thatness, where when you're feeling fear again over something mm -hmm. that seems to be a pattern, you just have, you have that flexed muscle. So you're more able to sort of power through that and know also with you that maybe there's not a whole lot to be afraid of, mm -hmm. but I have new fears are cropping up all the time. I mean, I walk outside and I can't help it. I'm a parent too. I have two small kids, so they always keep me on my toes. Okay. Taking the big fears out of the way, the big fears are anything happening to my kids, right? Yes. My little fears are snakes and heights. <laughs> oh. And then there's the deep-seated thing like, do I matter? Do I exist? <laughs> Have I, does anybody care about what I write, what I record, what I think about and hope to become? My comedy, has it made a difference? Oh. Am I wasting my life? Those are also pretty big fears, but somewhere in between my kids being hurt and snakes. Yeah, or elevators or escalators yeah. or... I also don't like shirts with holes in them. Like, you know, sometimes there's like, there was that Michael Jackson video with Janet. He did like back in the day yeah. and they wore these like ripped, it was like as if like they had been eaten live by piranhas and then the clothing, they just put the clothes back on. And I was like, no. That caused never, you angst? <laughs> Their wardrobe caused you agita? <laughs> a little bit. Yeah. And so ever since then, I don't really like, I don't know. I just like weird things will set me off. Yeah. Yeah. We're here to talk about your book, A Healthy State of Panic, Follow Your Fears to Build Wealth, Crush Your Career, and Win at Life. And it all starts with young Farnoosh 
in suburban Massachusetts. Tell me about your childhood. Well, we weren't in the suburbs yet, Paul, which was part of the fear. Oh, you're way out. You're way out of the suburbs. <laughs> we're in the Worcester. We're in the we're in the second largest city. And for everybody who's not Massachusetts. in Massachusetts, Worcester is spelled Worcester. Worcester or Worcester, yeah. Absolutely makes no sense. And yeah. my parents are immigrants from Iran, so it's doubly hard for them to <laughs> Because Worcester pronounce. Worcester was not a progressive welcoming suburb at the time. Not really. And it was also very much a rundown city. Like, I don't know if they had been allocating their tax dollars wisely mm -hmm. in, in the 80s. The New York Times even once called it nobody's first choice. And so here <laughs> I... <laughs> that was my dating strategy in college. <laughs> the underdog. Yeah. I was like Avis, right? You know, we number two had to try harder. So just to remind us the timeline, this is early 80s. Yes. It's early. Yes. So right after the Iran hostage crisis, a lot of xenophobia, a lot of not good feelings for Iran in the United States, regardless of which political or religious factor you came from, to Americans, right. Iran is Iran, right? Iran is Iran. And the tides had turned quite quickly. I mean, we, my father had been invited to come to study here for free to earn his PhD. And in the midst of all of that, which, you know, as PhDs take a while, um, in the meantime, he'd married my mom. They'd had me. We're living in Worcester. And now it's time to actually graduate and find a job. And now we're in this whole new political world mm. with all this anxiety. And so my father would often say to me, and I didn't really understand it as a kid, but he's like, we are so darn lucky because it was literally one person I got a lot of rejection, a lot of no's. He had been applying for all these jobs. Nobody wanted to sponsor him, but one person did. And that one person essentially allowed us to have the life that we have today. Otherwise, he would have had to go back to Iran. I was born here. Who's that person? His name was Dr. Kanal. My father would call him Dr. Kanal. And he used- Fellow Persian? No, I think he was Indian. He was uh, from Indian descent. Okay. And he was a longtime U.S. citizen by then, was a manager at a company, an engineer, and really just took to my dad and was like, I want to help you because he probably was helped himself at one point. And he would come over our house for dinners. Like he was royalty when he would come over my house because <laughs> this man literally changed our lives. So your dad's a student, your mom's a homemaker, mm -hmm. you're fresh from, from a foreign country, you've got very little money. What mm -hmm. was school like for young Farnoosh? Oh. <laughs> well, we moved around a bit too. My parents, like a lot of immigrants, were on this journey to achieve the American dream. And for them, that meant whenever you made a little bit more money, you moved to somewhere that was a little bit safer, that had a little bit better school district, less crime. So we would bounce and bounce and bounce. And I think I moved like half a dozen times by the time I was in college. And in elementary school, we moved from Worcester to then a town named Auburn and then Shrewsbury. And every time I would move, I was the new girl. And it wasn't like I was the new girl at the beginning of the school year. I would always somehow, my, the timing was always really bad. My parents were like, we're going to move in October. We're going to move in like May. So, you know, good luck. Thrust me into this like you know, new pool of kids. And I'd always have to be that new kid with a weird name. Oh my God, mm. that was the worst part of it. I couldn't hide. I was this kid. <laughs> You're not Mary Beth O'Connor. <laughs> or Nicole or Jessica yeah. or all those names that I desperately, and I would change, try to change oh, my name. It was name so sad to, to read that, Farnoosh. I was like, oh, this no. poor little girl who's 
just wants to fit in. It was like, you know, and when I would ask my parents, like, why? Why did you give me this name? Because it's not even like that common in the Iranian culture. I have never met. The first time I met another Farnoosh, I was like 32 years old. There's some incredible Iranian model named Farnoosh. What? I was looking up yeah. to get the exact title of your book earlier today. And it was Farnoosh Hamanadi or something. like. She's spectacular. Yeah. Well, we're in a different world today, right? We're in a global yeah. world where... I'm sure there are some like 25-year-old Oprahs running around, but Oprah had to walk so these other Oprahs could run. And that, I, that model stands yeah. on your shoulders. <laughs> I need to get in touch with her and uh, come up with our, our new business plan. But So you're a very self-conscious. You would change your name. You would pretend to be Italian. Oh, yeah. On Where Are You From Day mm-hmm. in third grade, which is just don't ever ask anyone that, you know, like, where are you from? Unless it's you know already you're in a trust tree, but usually you're not. Like usually that question is coming from a place of, mm, is, at least in Worcester in the 80s. I see that in Worcester, but today, I mean, I know this and I've talked to this about with friends who are first generation from a lot of other places. When we moved to Atlanta, my wife and I moved here 13 years ago from Los Angeles and we'd meet people and they'd say, where'd you go to high school? And my wife thought it was like, they were trying to find out, oh, are you from a nice family who's been in the city for, you know, for Mm -hmm. decades and generations? And I was like, no, sweetie, they're just trying to find common ground to talk about, you know? And I do find myself, I was at a tennis match the other day. My daughter was playing another girl. I was talking to the mom who's obviously Indian. And I was like, where did you grow up? And I consciously didn't want to say, where are you from? Because I was like, you know, I just wanted to talk about who she was and where she's from. And I'm sure... There's been a thousand times in her life it's been taken, yeah. been intended the wrong way. But I think a lot of times it's not, you know? I like where did you grow up? I think that is showing that you're curious about the how and the where and not, not just like the the zip code so that you can place her mm-hmm. and make a quick decision, but that you're actually interested to know like what influenced her. And yeah, where we grow up has nothing to do often with where we're from from because my mm. parents... Uh, you know, are Iranian. And so, yeah, it was triggering because I was not the same. And it, when you're a kid, like, that's all you want to be yeah. is the same. Yeah. Which part of Italy did your family come from? <laughs> are you Sicilian or not? I, I wasn't that quick on my feet, you know? It was like I'd, I'd just seen Nicole pass out croissants from her Parisian roots. Sure. And then, sure, and then from- it was um, Colleen who was handing out, you know, little shamrocks from because her parents are Irish. <laughs> and then it's like Farnoosh. And I was like, Italiana. Next. <laughs> the which part you know? of Italy are you from? Uh, New Jersey. That's the yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Did you wear hand-me-down clothes or clothes that you got from other Persian families? Or did your mom make your clothes? Like, what was your, was there a, like a, a look and a makeup that you had that othered you because you were not wearing the same things the girls were wearing, the American girls were wearing? We were not well-resourced, so we didn't have the money to go and buy things retail at Sears. Mm -hmm. Often it was layaway, and we didn't actually even have other Iranians that we knew in the community that even, you know, maybe we knew a few, but they didn't have children. So there was not a a wish. There were some Mm hand-me-downs, but I just remember, this is like very triggering. Paul, how did you know to bring this up? (laughs) Because I grew up wearing my brother's (laughs) hand-me-downs, and and the hand-me-downs of our friends, the Boguses and the Schlinkies, I'd wear the older boys' clothes. Like- My mother was 19 when she had me, and I don't know if it's because she was sort of, this was her aesthetic, Mm -hmm. and so she just gave it to me, but I was always wearing muted colors, like gray 
and beige and brown. I remember one time for a friend's birthday party in second grade, she went to go get the kid a gift, the girl a gift. And I was curious, what did you get her? Did you get her like a doll? Did you get her something pink? She came back from TJ Maxx with a taupe turtleneck. (laughs) I was like, okay, first of all, you're not seeing the social damage here, mom. Like I got invited to a birthday party, which is incredible. That is a feat in and of itself. Now I have to show up with a beige slash taupe turtleneck to give to this girl. I'm not cool now. Like this is, I'm going to, I remember we fought about it. My mother like just didn't care. And I remember feeling like she would dress me like boys. There's a picture of me with another girl who is Iranian, but somehow she got like the recessive genes. She's like blonde and blue eyed Mm -hmm. and I'm, you know, me with my unibrow and I'm wearing a maroon and gray turtleneck with a pair of gray overalls and then a (laughs) pair of like gray and brown Mickey Mouse sneakers. Clearly she shopped in the boy aisles, maybe because the clothes were cheaper. I don't know. That's the next book, but it was definitely something that I remember was such a pain point for me. I couldn't escape the name being different and also my clothes. I set out like a sore thumb. So yeah, don't feel bad for me. Everything worked out. I think taupe turtleneck, isn't that quiet luxury? What is the, what is the (laughs) thing now? Quiet fashion or something? Yeah, right. It's like a... What's her name from Succession? Succession. Yeah. 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 It's giving Succession. That's right. So she was just saying, you do understated stuff. Ahead of her time. That's right. Yeah. That's right. What was your mom like? My mom was very young and very sad, I think, in the beginning of her marriage to my dad. This was not happily ever after for her. This was literally the third youngest kid in her family growing up in Shiraz. Her parents are looking and going, this country is going to hell in a handbasket. We need to get you out. And my father was seeking a wife and my father was already friends with you know my mom's sister's husband. So it was like, okay, you're familiar and you're smart and you're coming from a good family. Let's set them up, go on a date. If you like him, this is your ticket. Otherwise, like, I don't know what she would have done. She wasn't being prepped for college. Most of the universities were shutting down anyway at that point. So for her, my dad was sort of, he was a nice man who was offering to bring her to the United States where her sister was currently living as well. And so she felt at least there was that connection. But having me at 19, being married at 17, having me at 19, coming to the United States, she was lonely And I felt that there were moments where I felt like, you know, she was always, she was a good mom and she did everything she could. But listen, what were you doing at 19, Paul? What was I doing at 19? I certainly wasn't trying to raise a a newborn in a foreign country. I don't speak the language. I don't have a license. I don't have my own money. And she was terrified. She was terrified. I inherited my mother's fears as a kid. I was very dependent on her. She designed it that way. You know, she never left me alone. And then so when she tried to, it was chaos. I would never stay with babysitters. I remember waking up from a nap. I was like three or four years old. And she was down the hallway in our apartment building, putting in a load of laundry. I didn't see her. So I started to panic. And it was like a whole thing. I would, I was that kid in kindergarten where a substitute teacher showed up unannounced, a man. And because I had been told that all strangers are bad and I just assumed that if, even if it was someone within your school, (laughs) you didn't recognize, like I left the room shouting, banging on the other doors, pleading for the teachers to come save us from this monster. So it prompted a parent teacher conference. (laughs) Uh, I don't have to tell you 
And they were like, is everything okay at home? Oh, man. And I felt so bad because then, of course, now we're like, is there abuse going on? Like, what's going on? It was just, no, we were just like two terrified people in a home. Like, and she said to me, I, I, I made you purposely afraid because that's the only way I knew how to parent you and control you, especially, again, living in the backdrop of a city like Worcester. And this is the 80s, the era of kidnapped children on the backs of milk cartons. It is the era of unsolved mysteries and after school specials and all sorts of wild things that were created by the media. Like, I, I don't think we're living in less scary times now, but I just think that it was kind of the culture back then to really stir up the scaries. It sold. It was a business. What did you learn from money from your respective parents? What did you learn about money from your respective parents? Good and bad. I learned on the one hand that money is not a taboo topic. We talked about it a lot. I learned that it's important to care about your money. I learned that it's important to spend within your means and all the good things that I think new citizens in America who come from other countries who come here with the singular hope of just breaking even or, you know, getting to that promised land of like being a homeowner and having financial independence. You know, my parents are very frugal and all of that stuff. And I credit them for giving me at least that foundation. But on the other hand, I also learned that when you become an adult, especially as a woman, it's very important to have your own money. My mother didn't have that. And so a lot of their arguments growing up, which I witnessed, which I don't know if they, they couldn't control it. We lived in small apartments and I was, <laughs> I was the only child for a long time. So I was always there. The walls were thin and I would hear everything. And I would mostly hear my mother crying about that, you know, I don't have any money. You don't let me have the money. You don't share the money. I don't know where the money's going. That added to her existing loneliness, this other layer of like sort of financial anxiety. But it did prompt her to go to college, get a degree, get a job. You know, now she has financial independence. But in those early years of, say, the first 10 years, she was hurting. But took action. Was that mainly cultural or is it specific to your dad? No, I think it's completely cultural. And I would say that's not even Persian. That's just like, a, this is something that men do <laughs> or men did with their money. It was seldom did you find a couple where the husband was like encouraging his wife to work, encouraging his wife to learn as much about money as possible, to have open conversations. I think that, and I hear this from other people, people my age talking about their parents. And it can be tragic because I know for, you know, at least one friend, her father passed away and her mother didn't know how to pay the mortgage. Her mother wasn't sure where the life insurance was. And it turns out when he was sick towards the end of his life, the life insurance payments had lapsed mm. and he didn't want her to even know about it because he would, whenever they would bring it up, whenever she would bring it up, he would say things like, well, you know, it was almost felt like a like she was hurting his ego, you know, like, I got this. This is my job. You don't have to worry about this. This felt almost like his duty until he couldn't even do it anymore. And even then it wasn't um, something he felt he should let her in on. And then it really just kind of blows up. That's not the legacy you want to leave. We'll jump around a little bit chronologically, but while we're on this topic, share the story about how you intervened with your parents' money relationship when you were home from college. Yes, I'm home from college. And at this point, my parents are still married. I don't know how, but they're still married. And <laughs> they argued a lot. 
They did. And I don't know, I guess they're codependent and uh, they do love each other. And at this point, like I said, you know, years into their marriage, now 20 years, uh, my mother was working. She had her own 401k and was much more financially literate. And yet there was a piece of their relationship that was uh, unaddressed, their financial relationship that was a real uh, difficult, tenacious thing in their marriage. And that was that my dad much to my mother's chagrin, like he wouldn't share the passwords to their bank accounts and silly things like that, which I feel like these days it's like, if, if that's a, such a red flag, like if your partner is like, do not want, does not want you to see the bank accounts, like run. But in this case, I think it was just again that he felt like it was his turf. This is my, it's almost as if my dad was like, I'm going to start cooking all the meals tonight and forever. You know, my mom was like, get out of the kitchen. And for my dad, money was the kitchen. Like, get out of the kitchen. This is not for you. And it wasn't that he was, you know, laundering money or anything like that. But of course, the mind travels when that sort of stuff happens. You're like, oh, my God, what you go to the worst case scenarios. And she was just she was mostly just worried that God forbid something would happen to him or they did get a divorce, that she would be completely in the dark. And so I'm in college. I'm studying finance. I'm home on spring break. And she goes, all right, let's put your money to work here. She turns to me actually in tears. It's actually a sadder story than that. But she turns to me and she's just like, I cannot get through to your dad. And I really, and she was so scared. She was crying. I'm home thinking like, I'm just here to like, you know, veg out and pack up. I used to go home on spring break and like steal all the toilet paper and all of the food and like pack it into my luggage and then go back to Penn State. And um, now I'm like tasked with a huge responsibility. She wants me to go and talk to my dad about giving her the information about their passwords and account names and all that. I'm like, this is a little out of my lane. But at that moment, I realized that love is greater than fear. That as much as I was afraid of breaking this conversation with my dad and what would he say and the reaction, my love for my mother and my concern for my mother was much greater. And in that moment, I just chose to do it. And I think I'm so glad I did. I'm, it's one of my prouder moments. My dad has always been a feminist towards me. He's the guy, the dad, who was always saying, shoot for the stars, get your masters, negotiate. You should talk to your company about their benefits, open up the 401k before I even knew what the letters meant. And I think to hear his daughter say to him, the very words that he was telling her thrown back at him, like, don't you want mom to be financially aware and independent and why are you doing this this isn't fair da, da, da. and he, I think he was quiet he listened he was quiet as my dad is he's more reserved and then later that night he printed everything out and gave it not just to my mom but also to me so that is not something that I think happens in a lot of households but that was our family that was our dynamic I was often the kid who was going and shuttling in between them during fights to yeah. be the messenger and as sad as that situation is it is kind of beautiful that your dad listened to you and I mean not mm -hmm. he should have been listening to your mom all along obviously but like that he that you helped him grow in that situation I hope so we all grew we all grew you know I learned how to be more of an advocate I think that's part of being an only child for many years. My brother was born when I was 11. I was constantly Todd, Todd right? <laughs> right? Okay, talk about that. Farnoosh and Todd. <laughs> what a perfect combination of sibling names. 
I can't make this stuff up. Yeah. And so I, um, I hope that, you know, my mom read the book and she was laughing and she was crying and she was like, you know, I just feel like I didn't realize how much you were seeing me all these years. Oh my gosh. Well, she's only 20, 19 years old than you are. I mean. Oh yeah. We're like sisters. I have friends, good friends that are older than my mom. Sure. And that's always, that's always weird. They're sure. like, how old's your mom? Yeah. <laughs> like if they're, she's younger than you. Tell me one generation later, how do you and your husband balance the management of money in your household? Oh, it's so different. It's not a coincidence that I think I married who I did. And I always say that, I used to say that I make more in my relationship and I'm the, you know, financial person in the relationship because uh, it just happened that way, I Mm -hmm. guess, you know, opposites attract. No, I think I subconsciously like wanted for this because I've always been, again, that kid who grew up realizing the importance of having financial independence. And not to say that I couldn't be with a man who cared so much about money and was out there like really all about making all the money. But there is something that we balance each other out quite nicely. And in our relationship, though, we have a very level playing field. I mean, it's I've written the book about making more, but it's not that anything else is there's no disparate anything in the relationship. There's the money, the income's disparate. But in terms of who has a say, who has a voice, everything is kept transparent with technology, it's much easier to do that now. So we can both log in and see our accounts and see our net worth. In the beginning of our marriage, I wanted to bring in a financial advisor because I felt that that would help to set us off on the right course and have that third person who's objective to kind of tell us, here's your checklist, go do it. And nobody, I for one, wouldn't feel like I was nagging or being over, like too dominating or overwhelming because I am more naturally interested in the money stuff. My husband can be quieter about it. And in the beginning of our marriage, I recognized that. And it did scare me because look, I know a lot. I don't know everything. Mm. And I don't want to be tasked with all of the, all of the answers and all of the responsibilities as much as I enjoy it. And as much as I feel confident doing it, I'm going to mess up. And then I don't want to be the one holding the bag. (laughs) I don't want to be the one with taking all the blame. Like we are in a relationship. If a toilet breaks, who calls the plumber? You or him? <laughs> oh, my gosh. Um, usually, Tim will try to fix it. <laughs> well, good. First of all, there. Well, First, not saying the man should be the one like, to do it, but it's good that somebody's trying to be self-reliant in the household. <laughs> like, if Tim wasn't home, I yeah. would probably try to fix it, and then I would call the plumber faster than Tim would call the plumber. <laughs> I have the plumber on speed dial and Tim is like, I'm going to Home Depot back in two hours. Uh But fortunately we have other bathrooms. So I guess that that's probably why. No, I just think it's, you know, the whole lean in thing. And there is a division. Obviously the research says that women, even working women do a wildly disproportionate amount of the household work. But I find it interesting, like who pays the bills, who handles the home repair type stuff, who drives carpool more like there's, all these different little nuances of household management. And Mm -hmm. so, and I haven't had a traditional job in a long time. So I'm doing like some mix of those things. And right now it just seems there's like a plethora of things breaking in the house. And it's like, I'm always calling. We just had the guy to fix the dryer vent here today. Yeah. And I'm like, so I'm the dryer vent guy, (laughs) you know, (laughs) it's good to have those people on in your phone. And especially now, as homeowners, we lived in apartments all of our marriage, and now yeah. we finally have a house, and oof, it's a lot. Like there, the first week, the fridge broke, and everything course, was like, of course. Yeah. 
All right, going back to the, some of the key elements of the book, let's talk about anxiety. You write in the book that you were an early onset careerist with no chill and that you could be found applying for internships under a desk lamp at 1 a.m., and I'm paraphrasing, and you chose to work over fun many times. Mm-hmm. What made you so ambitious or so anxious? I think that for me, financial freedom has always meant freedom. Like I remember being a kid, a little kid, seven years old, waiting for my dance class to start and listening to the other moms in the waiting room have what they thought was just normal, light conversation. (laughs) And they would say things that terrified me because I would hear them talk about how they were afraid to drive to Boston, where we lived in Worcester. It was an hour away. Well, I don't drive on the highway. My husband better do that. That month, the bill was due for the dance class. And so, well, I better go ask my husband for the money. And I'm like, what's going on here? Like, do these women have any real say in real things that matter? And so from that age, I knew that money and a license meant freedom. Like I had to learn how to drive. That was important. And I better get good on driving on the highway. And I'm going to make my own money. And so that was the elementary version of the story that then I grew up with and that story eventually evolved and became having your own financial power means choices. And as the kid growing up in a family that didn't really want me to experiment much, like I was not a free kid. Like I could do things, but I couldn't do a lot of things. I wasn't doing sleepovers. I wasn't eating sugary cereals. I wasn't watching Punky Brewster, like all the little things, but also the big (laughs) things too. Like I almost wasn't allowed to go to prom. I almost wasn't allowed to go on a lot of the like trips that my classmates would go on because it meant being away from home. And so all of that, you know, and I talk about FOMO in the book, but I, you know, I learned to get really good with FOMO. Just FOMO and I are like, we're good. We're mm-hmm. too, we're like cool as a cucumber when FOMO shows up. Cause I'm like, I know what it's like to not be able to do those cool things like everybody else. That said, I want to create my life. I want to design my version of cool and do the things that I want to do. It wasn't that I wanted to like, I wasn't desperate to go do what everyone else was doing, but I just knew that money would unlock options and optionality for me. And as soon as I could do that, the faster that life would start for me. You said the expectation in a Persian home is more like, go be a doctor, go be a lawyer. How did you choose to become a financial journalist? Wow. Well, yeah, that was a tough uh, conversation with my parents. I think I hear this from a lot of other children of immigrants and like those who pursue the arts, you know, I went to Columbia journalism school and that was it. My parents were like, okay, if you're going to do journalism, it better be at an Ivy league, you know? And so <laughs> these other, you know, it I think be it the most like, expensive journalism <laughs> school there is. <laughs> this needs bragging rights. Yes. Or others who perform, who pursued acting, for example, they did it at Yale or, mm-hmm. you know, Juilliard or wherever. So it's like, there always has to be a compromise But I did pursue finance initially because my dad said to me, you need to go to college and get a return on your investment. And it was very clear from the onset, like I was not becoming a doctor. I have a thing for blood. I can't. Nope. I wasn't going to. I thought about maybe being a lawyer, but I don't know. I'm just not that into like studying the law. Yeah. (laughs) I want to be performing in a courtroom. 
but I don't necessarily want to be doing paperwork and litigation <laughs> and, you know, which is most law. Like most law oh, is yeah. not law and order. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's not courtroom stuff. It's I did mock trial stuff. in high school. Yeah. I was very good at mock trial. I get, I get great opening statements, mm. great closing statements, closing arguments. But and we won our cases. But uh, my mom was like, that's not actually what being a lawyer is. So we're not going to steer you in that direction. And so did finance because it was the next respectable thing and it was going to have an ROI, which meant what more linear path is there to studying finance to go make the money? And still my parents were like, so, but what's grad school? You know, you didn't get the MBA. Like what's the end goal? Because for Iranians, and I actually were, we gave an interview for the New York times about this Iranians, there is a deep embedded insistence on not just going to college, but also going to graduate school. I think that there was a, right. a study like, Iranians are like the most educated in the world in terms of like highest degrees and all that. And it's, I think it's because just for us, like there is this association with education being the epitome of success, getting that education, like education unlocks opportunities. We have a history with that. So it's just firmly ingrained in the culture. And my dad used to joke with, not really joke. He was my husband, Tim, he, he and I met at Penn State. And that was it for him. Like he wasn't going to go get an MBA or anything like that. And my dad was like, you know, there's a program. Uh, you can get an MBA and your PhD together. And I was like, what is this about? He wants me to never either see my husband again or, you know, he's just so locked into this cultural expectation ideal. But my husband was like, I'm good. I'm yeah. a software engineer. I don't need to. Where'd the itch to perform come from? I think being a, a lonely kid, uh, I always wanted a sibling. I always wanted a compadre growing up, someone who was my age, not my 19-year-old mother. And so it started with, I think, the loneliness and just wanting to connect and be also seen. I felt mm -hmm. like, again, you know, I wasn't a kid that was allowed to, like, just be a kid. And I wasn't a kid, too, that was celebrated for doing kid things, I was celebrated when I did adult things, when I did mature <laughs> things, you know? It wasn't like, oh, isn't she so cute? She messed up that line. Or isn't she so cute? You know, like today I have two kids, you know? I just find that I relish in their childishness, you know? Like the way they pronounce things still with like a lisp or they make up words or the way that they play, the way that they talk to one another. I love that. Mm. And I don't think anybody was either a noticing that. There was no time. There was like, you have to afford that time you know <laughs> like yeah. it was a hustle in the 80s in my family and so i think i just like the idea of being able to escape into another place another time another world another character and acting i remember in third grade i got introduced to acting i was at a camp and they're like we're gonna make paper mache masks and then you can like create a play around it I remember we still have the film the footage from that and i just remember just making the audience laugh so much with my stupid body movements and it was a silent play so <laughs> you had to just kind of like mime your way through it and there was music and it was so much fun and ever since then I I always was the kid who was like oh there's an acting class oh there's a performance thing like sign me up so that's where it started Hey everybody, this is Paul. We'll be right back with Farnoosh in just a second, but I want to ask your favor. Hey, you like me. You want to help me out, don't you? Sure you do. Well, the only way for independent podcasters to rise above the fray inside of Apple Podcasts and other podcast apps is for you to rate and review the podcast. That's right. You can click the link in my show notes or go to the podcast page in those apps and scroll down 
to the area that says rate and review and you can give me five stars and you can write something nice and thoughtful about why you like crazy money so that would be very very helpful to me also in the show notes is a link to my Substack, uh, which is a bi-weekly eh, mostly bi-weekly say 800 to 1100 word essay about money the meaning of life and assorted things that piss me off Recently, I've talked about everything from uh, how frustrated I've been with my streaming services and the subscriptions to which I have no idea how much I'm paying to whom or why. And uh, I always try to relate money with a funny edge or just a little bit of edge as I did with my review on the whole Lizzo situation from a month or so back. Anyway, click on those links, write me a review, subscribe to my Substack. Keep being you. Thank you. Now back to the noosh. Let's talk about the book. How much fear is healthy and why is it healthy? I think that when we're at the crossroads of big decisions in our lives where we're deciding whether to get married or start the business or even just invest, that's pretty scary and that's high stakes and there's fear in the midst of all of that, it's worth a beat to listen to that fear and go, okay, what is this showing up for? What is this fear trying to tell me about what I care about, what I want to value and honor and treasure and secure. There's other times when fear is not helpful. And I think that's probably when you're moving too fast and fear shows up and you're about to get on a plane and you're feeling the fear or you're about to like maybe do something that's new and you're afraid. But even then, I think fear deserves just even a little nod. You know, I mean, look, it's just like any other emotion, happiness and anger and sadness. I think for too long lived in a culture that wants us to strictly look at happiness as it. You know, like every other emotion is not worth our, worthy of our time. I definitely was that kid too who was told like, why are you crying? You know, don't cry. Just be happy. Smile more. And yeah, I think we all want to be happy, of course. But on the road to that, it requires being really comfortable in your skin. And if you're somebody who can be mature when the other emotions show up, which they will, they always do, I think you'll have a, a much better time of handling life and appreciating that happiness when it arrives. This book is not about phobias. It's not about spiders and heights. And That's a legitimate God. fear, Furnish. Okay. <laughs> Don't make fun of my fear of heights. Hey, totally legit, totally <laughs> legit. But, you know, the thing is, like, those kinds of fears you can quickly rationalize out of that fear. Like, if you just look at the fact that statistically getting in your car is actually more dangerous than boarding a plane. Sure. But fears aren't rational all the time. And we're played upon by the way news finds us, right? Yes. Sensational plane crash that kills 100 people gets 10 times the airtime of, you know, the aggregate millions of people who die from you know, garden variety auto accidents every year. Well, because, of, and I work in the media and it's because of the it's nature of that fault. accident. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Oh, sorry. Sorry, not sorry. I mean, you're absolutely right. The media profits off of fear, but those events make the news because they are outliers. Yes. The news does not report on everyday things. It's when dog bites man or man bites dog. And so when there is something outrageously unbelievable that happens that is devastating, I mean, that is unfortunately a great news day. All right. I have to confess that some of the parts of the book that I enjoyed the most were where you made your biggest mistakes. So will you share You're welcome. <laughs> share some of the share some of your career missteps or mistakes that you've made at work that you learned from. Oh. 
the short list. Okay. The fear of failure was actually the longest chapter in the book. I don't know if you noticed, but it would have been longer too. I've had many, many upsets in my, in failures in my career, in my 20 some year career in financial journalism. I've said the dumbest thing to the nicest people on live television. (laughs) Um, (laughs) I told Meredith Vieira that she's quite old and um, (laughs) I'm, (laughs) I'm paraphrasing. You can read about it in the book. I went and interviewed the CEO of DuPont on my company's dime, took the Acela to DC. I took the fancy first class train. Nice, nice. And yeah, and I got there and I was all ready to, I was the only one with the camera. Well, I, I was like the first one there. So I got the really good spot right in front of him and I forgot to hit record during the entire interview. And you can't tell the CEO of a Fortune 500 blue chip company, hi, sir, can we do that? All over again, the last 25 minutes. That was just a. Was just I a think what check. I would have said to him is, sir, you had a booger on your nose oh the God. entire interview. And I, I know you don't want to. This is for you, sir. This is all for. But as a podcaster, I can relate to that fear. Yeah. <laughs> because you always look like, yeah. am I recording? Am I recording? Am I recording? Because you're doing it. And it, it still happens occasionally. Like it happened more when I was first podcasting. Um, gosh, I remember I almost got fired from Money Magazine because I ran a factual error in the magazine, um, which wasn't like it wasn't a high stakes error. It wasn't like I told people to buy a stupid stock that tanked. Even that would have been probably okay to do because it was just an opinion piece. This was not an opinion piece. This was a fact piece about dollar stores. Mm -hmm. And I incorrectly stated that dollar stores are where everything costs a dollar. But Paul, you and I both know sometimes things are three dollars, sometimes right. they're five, correct, sometimes they're ten. And that, believe it or not, almost got me fired. Why do you share these and what do you want the reader to take away from these stories? Uh look, first of all, because people see me and they're like, I can't believe that you have these fears. I can't believe you do you have like the you have you seem fearless, you get up on stages, you have all these big jobs, you interview crazy important people how are you not fearless? And I say, because fear is not something that we can just ignore. It is a an abundant resource running through our veins. It is accessible to all of us and it shows up all the time. And I think I'd be lying to myself and others to say that I am fearless. I portray fearlessness, but really inside what I've done is something much more crafty, which is that I have learned how to have a relationship with fear. I've learned how to understand why fear shows up, what it's trying to tell me, the wisdom. Sometimes I tell fear to go away, but I give it a minute. I analyze it. I unpack it. It's made me learn a lot about myself. And I think through our failures, we can learn so much about how to dance with fear or not. We can learn how to assess fear. And I've also written that sometimes when we fear like failure, Sometimes that's the point, you know, like sometimes failure has to happen, right? It's the process. It's the journey. And of course, now I can say all this at a distance uh, in reflection in the moment. Maybe I didn't always feel that way, but that's why I wanted to write the book is so that those of us who are still going through it, who are maybe at those scary crossroads, who are anticipating failure, who are worried about failure or any other fear, which I talk about nine different fears in the book, failure and loneliness and rejection and FOMO and money. And I just want you to know that there is sometimes a better way than to pretend that I'm not going to have this fear. This fear doesn't exist or this fear is bad. Maybe it's just a matter of like 
seeing this fear as a part of who you are, that it showed up with some intention. It's your job now as the adult with the agency and the resources to decide whether you want to take this fear with you or not, but take a moment to, to look at it and have that conversation. The book has all sorts of questions you can ask fear in those specific moments of fear, whether it is you're saying, okay, this is, this is the fear of loneliness or this is the fear of exposure, which is, which was a fun chapter. Mm. What do I do? What do I ask it? How do I figure out whether to like go there or not do the thing or not? It's a book I wish I had. It seems to me you reflect on these different parts of your life and you say, when you're not with the people, when your body's telling you you're not with the right people, you got to go find the right people. When your body's telling you you're not at the right job, well, maybe that's something you should listen to and go, go find that right job, find your people, find your job. And most importantly, find a place you can be yourself. Right. Because the mistake we often make when those fears show up when we fear rejection, which is what I'm hearing a lot in those examples is that we have to force it to work. It's us. It's not them. I'm being rejected because I'm not fitting in. So I'm not doing something right. And I'm going to really, I really want this opportunity. So I'm going to force this rejection into acceptance. And I've done that a lot. My earlier stories of failure and all that is about how I didn't use fear correctly. I didn't use fear in a healthy way, but how I had to sort of like ultimately wrestle with it and learn how to have a better relationship because as I said, fear doesn't go away. So was I going to just continue dead ending myself or was I going to have to like learn how to dance with this? It's an opportunity and not in something to be embarrassed about. But when rejection, especially when rejection shows up or this fear of rejection, it's got a few things to tell us. Maybe one that we have to go where we are loved, find that safer place because rejection is, you can't change people's minds is what I've learned. You can stay and be unhappy (laughs) and sometimes you do for a little bit because you got to pay the bills yeah you know like it's it's something you have to be able to afford but when you recognize it got to start planning you talk about for somebody who's as ambitious and success oriented as you are getting laid off from the street.com was a big kick to your ego oh my god i didn't write this in the book but i'll tell us and no one's listening, right? Um, <laughs> Almost no one. Almost. Almost. <laughs> dozens, Everyone's listening. I love your more podcast. Than no, there's <laughs> lots, lots. Millions and millions of people. Well, the week before I got laid off, my boss pulled me aside and said, We love you here. Mm-hmm. You're the best thing we've got. You're the best person we've got on the team. And And I was like, Wow. It was unsolicited. Just decided to. And maybe it's because he knew mm-hmm. and he was just trying to, you know, I don't know, rid himself of his own guilt. But literally the next week I was told I could never come back. Mm-hmm. And I don't, I know things change quickly at companies, but I don't know that one that stuck with me. I was like, what point is you're never safe wherever you're working. You could have had the best quarter, the best review. And then the next month you're out. I remember my friend Candace, my first boss at an internship, said she had just started actually, and she was sending out her resume in a fax machine. I was like, "What, Candace? What are you doing?" She's like, "I know I just started, but you know, my last job I got laid off, so I'm grateful for this job. But always send your resume out. Always keep faxing that resume." Now this is before LinkedIn, mm. but I was like, mm, "She seems like a little, a little too anxious." But I get it now. I see it because I experienced it. 
And what did that lead you to? Well, at first I was crushed, you know, I had just negotiated a senior title and role and all the things. And I felt like no one was going to take me seriously anymore. My title was my, was who I was. I was getting booked on national television as the senior correspondent, you know, so now who am I? And I realized that while this was a very uncertain time and I could not go back and beg for that job, I had to just kind of collect my resources, the things that I knew were non-negotiable that no one could take away from me and leverage those things. And what had remained, what endured was my experience, my ambitions. And importantly, I had written a book. I had just written a book the year prior, which I was able to take. No one was laying me off from that. So I used that book was my very first personal finance book. And I was like, this is going to be my platform. This is before social media. This is before people were doing even a lot of YouTube or any forget podcasts. So I said, the book is going to be my platform. The book is going to be my calling card. And so from that, I was able to book speaking and television appearances and ultimately television shows and brand partnerships and then another book and just kept building on the momentum, starting with that one piece of intellectual property that I had. And the point of that story is that, you know, when the fear of uncertainty arrives and failure and all the other, and money, I was afraid of money. That is an opportunity for us to take inventory of the things that cannot be taken away from us, that we can carry into the next, the next journey, the next step that we can leverage because we can sometimes lose sight of those things. We sometimes forget we have access to these things, that, that these things even have value. Do you think you'd be where you are if you hadn't been laid off by the street? No, no. I was just trying to play it safe in that job. You know, I, I was parallel to having that job as the full-time correspondent. I was, you know, on the side, like I launched a book, I was doing some media, I'd secured an agent and we had been talking about maybe like quitting, but the idea of quitting was so scary. Mm -hmm. But then I realized, you know, what's scarier is an unactualized life, a life where you didn't take the chance. And I was afraid of all the things like everyone's afraid of when they, you know, are worried about starting a business or going out on their own. It's like, insurance and money. And so I saved, you know, little by little, little by little. So by the time the layoff happened, I wasn't on my butt on the streets. I was able to continue paying my, my housing payments. You say it's the bigger fear is not living the life you're meant to lead more or less. Right. And, and I think that's what we all want to do, but that's something you think about like from the end backwards. It's very hard to make on any given month to say, I'm going to make the hard decision to break from this B plus job that I have where I'm the A minus version of myself to say, I'm going to go and make this thing happen. I mean, like, it's just harder to make that break until life kicks well, you in the teeth a little bit, right? It, it's true. And the calculus at the time also included factoring in things like it was a recession. There Rent. were no other jobs. Yeah. There were no other jobs, Paul. So even if I wanted to go back to a nine to five, that was not likely. Yeah. So suddenly what seemed very secure was no longer. And this thing over here, entrepreneurship, which I thought was like a complete gamble, felt more real, felt more like I'm not a totally spiritual person, but I do think that like the timing was just impeccable, right? I yeah. mean, like getting laid off in a recession, already having these thoughts, these like contemplations of going out on my own, but oh, I don't know, wrestling with the fear. And then they just say, you're cut off you got to go do something. 
And I just went and did them something. You know, I cried a lot. I ate a lot of dumplings. I watched a lot of Bridget <laughs> Jones' diary. I mean, I did sure. all the, I went, yeah. you got to do those things. Yeah. Felt bad for myself. Oh, the pity. But ultimately, you know, I started working out. I started eating better. I started sleeping better. And th- that went in tandem with my feeling of like can do itness, you know, feeling like I can go out there and like make something of myself without needing to rely on a brand or a company vouching for me. That brings us to an interesting anecdote that I hope you'll share that has to do with being laid off and work, especially for success-oriented people, as a major contributor to our identity and (laughs) self-worth. Tell us about how your dad's career ended in his 60s. Yeah, well, it ended and also refired in his 60s. He was laid off. My father worked in the semiconductor space. He's a physicist with a PhD. There are not many people who can do his job, but when there's consolidation in the industry, he's probably going to get laid off, especially because as he gets older, you know, it's an ageist economy in any industry. They want to hire the the cheapest as they, they can. And so my dad was no longer cheap, you know, in his 60s. And then there's a consolidation and he finally gets laid off. It was a fear that he always had in his career. And I remember when I was little, he would always talk at the dinner table about the package. (laughs) What's this package? Can I get a package? It sounds fun. You know, like it's a present. And he's like, no, it's, it's like, they don't want you to work there anymore. And they're going to give you a send off. And so he finally gets laid off in his sixties. My father has no hobbies. He's not like my mother who can entertain herself, who's social, social butterfly, works out, has things to do, keeps herself busy. My father works and does problems. He's really into numerology. Like he just loves science and math. And there was a fear that if he did lose his job in his 60s when he did not feel ready to quit or retire, that he was going to die faster. He really thought that was like it for him. Like if I don't have a job. The data supports it. The data supports it. Yes. Oh my gosh. You'd get along with my dad. It was a gutting time. You know, he, at this, while he anticipated it, it was still, it's still hard. It's hard to come to terms with it. So he decided, he realized. He's 68 when this happens, right? He's 60, like three. Oh, okay. He's 70 now. He's turning 70 this year. He's 60s, early 60s. He's like, look, I'm not going to find my old job again. It's not happening. That job doesn't exist anymore. But again, taking inventory of all your resources and skills. He has a PhD. He has like the appetite to learn like no one I know. And he's curious. He's got a curious brain. He's a scientist. And so he's like, what's happening in the world of science? Data management. Well, there's data uh, engineering. There's machine learning. There's artificial intelligence. So he's like, I'm going to learn this stuff because I like it as a matter of fact. And he took free classes through MIT and Stanford and Coursera and got certified. And after 12 to 16 months of that, he was so good. He was tutoring others. Like, What was the specialty he got certified in? I want to say you can go up on his LinkedIn. I don't know. It was like machine oh, learning or machine something. Learning. Yeah. yeah. And uh, he was so good that Stanford online was like, can you maybe teach our oh students? Gosh. And he was a professor at one point. I was like, dad, that's a perfect retirement job. He's like, no, I want to I want to go work for a company. And, you know, again, he did get a job after all those years and now works for a major company doing machine learning and is 70 years old, gets up every morning and does the job. And I'm like, are you going to retire? He did try retirement. He took a sabbatical. 
he had an eye surgery and he was like, maybe this is my opportunity to like take a break. Hated it. Yeah. My mother hated it too, by the way. So I'm sure she, she did. I'm sure she put did. Put it back to work. Well, I thought that was a beautiful story to share and it really gave me some hope for, you know, people late in life. It's never too late to keep learning. It's never too late to keep trying. And fear of being, you know, not being relevant can drive you to, to new heights, you know? Absolutely. It For him, was it was not just about creating a life that was certain again. And it was really about like, it was very closely aligned to his sense of personal freedom. Like for him, feeling free means being able to do what you love for as long as you can. And even if that thing pivots and changes and, you know, takes on a new identity, but like that is his job. He realizes that he takes that responsibility. Like I'm going to be the one who has to go figure that out. And the fear is going to fuel me. That's cool. All right. The book is called A Healthy State of Panic. Follow your fears to build wealth, crush your career, and win at life with my guest, Farnoosh Tarabi. Farnoosh, where can our listeners find out more about you? Well, I host a podcast thrice weekly at somoneypodcast.com, where, Paul, you've graced the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Let's do it. Let's do it. And then, of course, the book is available I don't know when this is airing, but hopefully everywhere by the time you're hearing this. And you can go to a healthy state of panic.com with all the more information and places to buy it. This will post October 3rd to coincide with the book. <gasps> it's the birthday of the book. Thank you. <laughs> Happy birthday, dear book. <laughs> hey, Farnoosh, it's so nice to talk to you after a few you years. Too. Thanks for uh, rejoining. Congrats on the book and best of luck with everything. Thank you so much. Uh, all right. I'm grateful to Farnoosh for taking the time to come to Crazy Money and share insights into her life and the process behind writing this book. It's interesting, you know, to hear the stories of somebody who came to America as a new immigrant and was an outsider for much of her childhood. Certainly immigration is in the news for a lot of good reasons right now. And we are not able to process all the immigrants that are coming over the border right now. Obviously we need a more healthier and sustainable immigration process but we should never forget the incredible contributions made by all the immigrants. My great, great grandfather was an immigrant or great, well, whatever, you know, how many other greats there were at some point he wasn't wanted. He wasn't welcomed, but over time he became assimilated and made contributions to the United States as did Farnoosh's family. It's just more recent. And I think that this is top of mind for me because Farnoosh is actually the first of two Iranian immigrants that I interviewed this week. Next week's interview is with a guy named Victor Hagani, who was raised in Tehran in London and lives in uh, America half the time now. And he's an incredibly accomplished financial person. He's got a great story as well. He ran a hedge fund or co-ran a hedge fund called Long-Term Capital Management that imploded in the late 1990s and in dramatic fashion had to be bailed out by the banks. He has uh, persevered and gone on to continue in his financial career and wrote a book called The Missing Billionaires. And so anyway, I'm just grateful to people like Farnoosh and their very courageous parents to come here and be a part of America and contribute. Certainly we are better off with brilliant minds like Farnoosh and Victor here inside America working to build our economy and contribute to a stronger society. That is it for today, ladies and gentlemen. Like I said, next week is going to be Victor Hagani. He's got a great story I know you're going to enjoy. And he shares very candidly what it's like to watch billions of dollars disappear, billions of dollars that you have invested on behalf of your investors, what it's like to watch that evaporate in front of you. He's vulnerable, he's candid, and I was appreciative for that. And I know you're going to want to tune in. Until then, Mike Carano, make me sound smart.